I'm Jacob Schatz. And I'm Bryce Miller. And this is Talking Atlas. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Talking Atlas. Those of you who read episode titles, and really, who among you doesn't, it's kind of hard to avoid, will know that this is the third Dominaria spoilers episode. We still have a week's worth of cards to talk about, so we're going to get right into that. Starting off with Josu Vess, Lich Knight. Two black black for a 4-5 legendary creature zombie knight with kicker five and a black. It's got menace. And when Josu Vess, Lich Knight, enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, create eight two two black zombie knight creature tokens with menace. The boys are back in town. The, the boys are black zombie knights? Yeah, back in black. Got two with that one. And also on... Okay, it's fine. My first reading of this card went approximately like this. Mm, okay, good. Glad he got a card. It's important to have him. Uh, it's a big kicker cost. Uh, you make some zombie knights, whatever. Wait, hang on. So eight, two, two zombie knights with menace? What? Ten mana gets you a lot of boys. Hey, they might not all be dudes. That's true. That has actually been a more serious consideration for me lately. While I am, understandably, given the fact that I am trans, hesitant to apply pronouns unless I am sure that they are correct, I've also thought a lot about the way that we will, when defaulting to a pronoun for, say, some rando that we're playing against online, or this miscellaneous object that doesn't have a gender, I've been thinking about how often I and people default to he, been trying to fix that. This is your once-monthly musing on gender, from Bryce, brought to you by... A zombie knight? Not to undercut that important message, but Josu's got a weird-looking hat, and I want to talk about it. <laughs> no, you're right. That is very pertinent. We can talk about pronouns later. It's almost mirroring bells and locks horns if you kind of squint, but it's mostly just a very large helmet. Also, what is his hammer? It fades off in the back. It's kind of cool. I dig it. Yeah, it looks great. It almost seems like one side is a hammer and the other side decided that it was going to attempt to be a comb but got stretched out a little bit too far it's the motion blur for when he swings the hammer but it's pre-applied <laughs> that would explain it imagine how hard that would be to hit someone with the spiked end there's no way that end can be as heavy as the other side so I feel as though you would start to leave with it and it's going to want to pivot to the dull side and then you end up bludgeoning them instead of stabbing them. And that would be sad if you are an evil zombie lich lord knight. I don't even think he swings it. I think he just holds it menacingly like he's got. That's why he has menace. Ah, fair. The four power and five toughness come from clearly two of it has to be him, seeing as he is a zombie knight. And then I guess the other two, three comes from the horse. I'd believe that. Next up, Cabal Stronghold. It is a land, it taps for C, or 3-tap, add black for each basic swamp you control. Firstly, wow, it's going to be hard to untrain myself to stop saying add blank to your mana pool. Yep. And by hard, I mean it will probably take me another like week or two. Cabal Stronghold is a clear reference to classic commander staple Cabal Coffers. That was more alliteration than I intended. Cabal Coffers is a land, it cannot tap for mana without a cost. However, it has two tap, add black to your mana pool for each swamp you control. This brings us to the inevitable question. Which of these two things is better? 
The answer is Cabal Coffers, but this one's still pretty good. Cabal Coffers not generating any mana on its own means that it's a terrible, terrible early draw for usually mono black or black X decks that use Urborg to make all lands swamps. So Cabal Stronghold does offset that. The two downsides, of course, are it takes three mana instead of two, and that it cares about basic swamps, but not non-basic swamps like, say, Godless Shrine. The good news for that downside is the aforementioned Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth is a land that makes all lands swamps in addition to their other types. If you have out Cabal, Stronghold, and Urborg, any basic land you control becomes a swamp in addition to its other types, which means it is both basic and a swamp and its original type as well. So the good news is that this still combos with Urborg. As a result, I think we'll see it plenty, mostly mono-black, and in black X decks that use Urborg. Next is Arcane Flight. Blue for an enchantment aura. Enchant creature. Enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one, and has flying. Flavor text. The Tolarian Academies are known for their magical research, powerful sorcerers, and accidental destruction of ecosystems. This ties into the art, where a cat has been given power beyond its wildest dreams in the form of wings to chase down birds. Though from the motion of the wizard behind the cat, I'm guessing this was an accident. Either that, or he just threw the cat to see if it could fly. Honestly possible. That is an entirely feasible response. Go, Mr. Kibbles, for science! <laughs> Next up, Evra, Halcyon Witness. Four white-white for a 4-4 legendary creature avatar with lifelink and activated ability for exchange your life total with Eva Halcyon Witness's power. This is one of the funniest potential trade-offs I've ever seen in Commander. You can pay for, make her, you know, 30, 40 big. As long as you connect, you will gain back the life, and then future swaps will not be very high risk. If you swap, and then she gets Doombladed, your life total will be four, and that's hilarious. Hold up an extra four to switch back. That will be very important. In other situations, I might say counter magic, but you have very few options in white. Not zero options, but very few. Nobody expects mana tithe. It's true. Next up, we have a story spotlight card, and also a pretty good tutor. Final parting. Three black black for a sorcery. Search your library for two cards. Put one into your hand and the other into your graveyard. Then shuffle your library. Flavor text. Sleep now, brother. That is the one gift I can give you. Liliana Vess. The story moment here is Liliana meeting up with her lich brother Josu, whom in her origin story she cursed with a rather unsettling form of reincarnation, or resurrection, I guess. And she finally puts him down, carrying out that part of her story arc. I wonder if she is also putting down those boys, who as we know, <laughs> are back in town. They were also brought to the yard. <laughs> You're not wrong. That, that was mostly the reason why I ascribed gender to them. I apologize. <laughs> that's, that, the song is The Boys Are Back in Town. That's, <laughs> that's fine. It's, it's totally understandable. The joke was there. And I am the last person to give someone a stink about the pronouns they habitually use to describe genderless concepts. So I wouldn't worry too much. Back on this card... The art makes a lovely parallel to the art for Liliana Heretical Healer, which is in many ways the card that opened up this 
It's weird to call this part of Liliana's arc, because that part of her arc was the start of it, and this is the end of one element. The art parallels that in that she is, well, obviously older, but walking down the same hill a bit further from the House of Vess, and there are just the same ravens circling around her. As for mechanical notes, this is one mana more than Diabolic Tutor to put a card in your graveyard, or one mana more than Gerard's orders and also both black instead of black green to fetch a card to your hand and a card to your graveyard instead of a creature to your hand and a creature to your graveyard. So yeah, I would take that. In the right deck, this seems like an easy include. That was a do-nothing statement. In decks <laughs> that care about graveyard mechanics, I could definitely see this replacing some of their tutors. But there are not many decks that will outright take advantage of a card being put into their graveyard. It probably needs to be a very, very heavy reanimator deck like Chainer. Or Moldrotha. Or Moldrotha. Throwback. Two week ago. But actually only a couple days in recording time. Time is fake. It's true. Sort of. Anyway, next up, Multani, Yavamaya's Avatar. Four green green for a 0-0 legendary creature elemental avatar with reach, trample, and... Multani Avamaya's Avatar gets plus one plus one for each land you control and each land card in your graveyard. One into green, return two lands you control to their owner's hands. Return Multani from your graveyard to your hand. Multani looks distractingly humanized. You are correct. Though, in fairness, previous iterations have looked disturbingly uncanny. Gotta go look. Oh, goodness, you're right. Ha! <laughs> Got a little Homer Simpson mouth going on. Specifically on Multani Maro Sorcerer, he's got the perfectly circular eyes, a little round nose, and then this beak, almost. Yeah, I think you're right. This is an update that I am perfectly okay with. Also, he's literally a tree. Well, he's literally an elemental who expresses as a pastiche of wood and growing things. So I'm pretty okay with him being able to retcon his own appearance. He did have good 60 years to regrow. The card is good for Gitrog, by the way, in case anyone was wondering if we actually talked about mechanics on this show. <laughs> it's fine for Gitrog. Never. What do you think this is? Mechanics Atlas? Sick Plays Atlas? Limited resources? <laughs> Definitely not that. <laughs> no, goodness, no. I am obliged to mention Lanawar Scout. One in a green for a 1-3 creature elf scout. With tap, you may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. Missed opportunity to reprint Walking Atlas, as always. Walking Atlas, by the way, my online namesake card and the namesake of this podcast has never been reprinted, which means the only copy out there is the one with the error where it says it's a creature, not an artifact creature. Fun facts. In some distant fantasy of mine, there is a Wizards employee who is aware of this podcast, and the moment that Walking Atlas is put into a file for a set to be reprinted, they tell us that it can be our preview card. That is my wildest Talking Atlas fantasy. We need to figure out our own AR kind of game, like how uh, Serpadian Empires Volume 8 sent in the four-part Homerid Jigsaw puzzle, and that's why we have a Homerid in this set. Seriously? Yes. Please tell me more. I shall. Sarpedian Empires Volume 8 is a Tumblr user who sent in four separate jigsaw puzzles to members of Wizards R&D. 
Each of the separate pieces included a word and an art for a homerid that had been printed in the past. The four sections were sent to Kelly Diggs and Allison Lures of the creative team and Mel Lee and Sean Main of the design team. And the four homerid arts were accompanied with the phrase, Empires fall, but tides rise again. Okay, this is coming back to me now. Good. And because of that, we have Homerid Explorer in this set. That is something. I don't know what, but it's something. The next card that I want to talk about is a reprint that is new to modern that unfortunately coincides with a modern that's going to have Dampening Sphere. But in hearing about this card, I learned about a deck type that blew my mind, especially when I saw what some people had been trying to play in modern. The card itself is Skirk Prospector. It's red for a 1-1 creature goblin that has Sacrifice a Goblin, add red. This card was part of an extended deck back in the day called Dirty Kitty. I'm sorry, what? The deck name is Dirty Kitty, and I'll explain why it was called this. Go on. It is something of a Goblin Storm deck that involves... Mono-red goblin tribal for value, with goblin pile driver, skirk prospector, but also empty the warrens. So you make a lot of goblins, you sack a lot of goblins to the skirk prospector, you play a lot more goblins, you sack all the goblins, and then you play empty the warrens to make a lot more goblins. Understood. So mono-red goblin storm is actually pretty concise. The name of the deck is derived from when Scott Johns, who posted a deck tech for this article on the Magic homepage in 2006, described, I believe it was himself, Scott Johns, and Brian David Marshall watching pro player Ben Stark pilot the deck, where Ben Stark got a slow play warning when he was trying to figure out the exact line of play that would let him kill his opponent. I was either one point short or one point over killing him that turn, recalled a sheepish Ben, who ended up getting a slow play warning from the judge while he agonized over his decision, using several sheets of paper to work out the complicated math that involved each and every one of the seven cards in his hand. Ben figured it out in the end and finished his opponent off with the sharpshooter plan after concluding that the pile driver option left him one short. But until he got there, Scott Johns and I were stifling laughter as we watched him squirm his way through the turn. We searched desperately for the correct description of the sequence, comparing it at first to a raccoon riding a bicycle. Scott came up with the best description, though. It is like watching a monkey wash a cat, he declared. It looks like something a human do, but it's just wrong. So if all goes well, you're saying that we can look forward to Dirty Kitty making its proud debut in Modern. We would if this set didn't also have a two-mana artifact that hosed Storm decks. Well... Yeah, I don't know. Shatter effects exist. Shatter effects on goblins exist. That's true. Also, someone tried to make this deck a couple of years back in modern and included four of Thermopod to take its place because Skirk Prospector is not in modern. Wow. Thermopod is a five mana, four and a red for a four, three snow creature slug with sacrifice a creature, add red to your mana pool. That is one heck of a curve difference. Mm hmm. Like something a human would do, but it's just wrong. Next up for me, Dwara's Familiar. Four mana for an artifact creature, Bird. It's a 2-2 with flying, and historic spells you cast cost one less to cast. 
As a reminder, historic spells are artifacts, legends, and sagas. Also, it's a cute owl. Oh my god, I love owls. It's so good. It's adorable. I want ten, like two for legitimate mechanical reasons and the other eight because they're really cute. Next up for me is Blackblade Reforged. Two mana for a legendary artifact equipment. Equipped creature gets plus one, plus one for each land you control. Equip legendary creature three. Equip seven. The flavor text is what's most important to me. It spilled the blood of one elder dragon. In Gideon's hands, it may yet taste another's. G- Gideon's gonna pick up the black blade? What is Gideon gonna do with the black blade? Why is why is mono white hero Gideon picking up the black blade? Oh my goodness! From this flavor text and from the story, we learned that Gideon's Searle broke, which is part of why he might be more willing to pick up a weapon. Also, I was not aware his Searle was a physical object. I always assumed it was something he projected with, like, mono-white magic. So far in the story, Gideon has also expressed extreme reluctance to anyone on his team using the Black Blade. And given that we know Nicol Bolas comes in and somehow snags Liliana's defaulted contract... Either the Black Blade becomes relevant after that point on Dominaria, or it's going to be a Chekhov's gun hanging on the wall for our next encounter with Nicol Bolas. Seeing Gideon's tactician skills come to the forefront here, doing what must be done, including going along with Liliana's scheme, I'd be very interested to see, if not necessarily a white-black Gideon, at the very least a practical, pragmatic mono-white Gideon. The fact that it's talking about him using the Black Blade at all means a pretty pronounced character shift for Gideon, who up to this point has been a traditional hero. Frequently to his detriment. Yes. Because there are so many people that he cannot save, and he can run himself ragged all across the multiverse, but it won't let him save everyone. Moving on now to Quende, Pride of Femoreth. Three and a white for a 2-2 legendary creature, Human Knight. Double Strike. And... Creatures you control with first strike have double strike. This seems like a cute option for a knight tribal commander, not because Quende references knights other than on his own type line, but because a unifying factor for knights is having first strike very frequently. Very well-placed and odd ability. Next up is Navigator's Compass. One mana for an artifact. When Navigator's Compass enters the battlefield, you gain three life. Tap until end of turn, target land you control becomes the basic land type of your choice in addition to its other types. Flavor text, the weatherlight can no longer plane shift, but it can traverse Dominaria with ease. This is a pretty decisive answer to the question that some of us were having of whether or not the weatherlight is going to be used as a plane hopping minibus. <laughs> it is not. I feel as though the weatherlight is a bit more glamorous than a minibus. Maybe. Have you seen its crew? Uh, fair. Plane hopping party train? Plane hopping party train. All right. Flying party train, which is very important. Whoop whoop. Plane hopping magic school bus? Yes, exactly. The adventures would be very educational. Our next card, Mishra's Self-Replicator. Five mana for a 2-2 artifact creature assembly worker. Whenever you cast a historic spell, you may pay one. If you do, create a token that's a copy of Mishra's self-replicator. Alright, Wizards is toying with me now. There are something like six or seven cards in Magic that reference assembly workers. 
and they go way, way back to, I think, Alpha, or at the latest, probably Antiquities, actually. There were three of them in Kaladesh block, all of which were kind of expensive, but kind of cute. I really want Assembly Worker Tribal to work. It doesn't do anything yet. This is the do most, the least do nothing assembly worker that exists, but that's a very, very low bar, my friends. I hope that one day, one day, we can get there. Another story spotlight card here. Settle the score. Two black black for a sorcery. Exile target creature. Put two loyalty counters on a planeswalker you control. Flavor text. You bound me with a contract only your death could end. And you thought me the fool? Liliana Vess. This card depicts Liliana finally killing the last demon in her four-part pact. Bells and Lock, of the many titles. Most of them stolen. Next up is the keyword soup of On Sarah's Wings. Three and a white for a legendary enchantment aura. Enchant creature. Enchanting creature is legendary, gets plus one plus one, and has flying, vigilance, and lifelink. And is pretty as heck. It is quite pretty. I'm a little bit confused as to what is going on. You know, flight. Yes, but this person looks like they did a victorious hop and then happened to sprout stained glass wings. I think they were hopping backwards into the stained glass window, and then the wings sprung forth from the window. Because magic. That I could believe. Also a fun fact for us here, this is only the fourth legendary aura in existence. One of the other ones in Boss's Clutches is in this set, Another one was printed in Rivals of Ixalan, Journey to Eternity, and then the original one, way back when, was Genju of the Realm from Betrayers of Kamigawa. Now I wish that we would get a Genju of the Realm reprint to have a five-color gold card in a legendary border. Oh, that would be so nice. Next up, we've got Blood Tallow Candle. It's one mana for an artifact, six-tap sacrifice Blood Tallow Candle, target creature gets minus five, minus five until end of turn. This is one of those cards that they use to have a payoff for their particular mechanics. In this case, it's historic. You need cheap artifacts because you can print those at common. And that turns on all of the cards that care about historic spells. I'm talking about it because I looked at this card and went, is that Profane Memento? It does look very similar. And it was Profane Memento. Profane Memento is one mana for an artifact. Whenever a creature is put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, you gain one life. Flavor text. An angel's skull is left too plain by death. I made a few aesthetic modifications. Dominique, blood artist. The flavor text for Blood Tallow Candle is, Bring me an angel feather, and I will give you one death in return. There can be no turning back once the candle is lit. Whisper, blood liturgist. Speaking of which, we do have a Whisper legendary creature card in this set. Whisper, blood liturgist, is three and a black for a 2-2 legendary creature human cleric. With tap, sacrifice two creatures, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. The art for Whisper is a reference to another of Kieran Yanner's artworks, that of the Cabal Ritual art from From the Vault lore. The Cabal Ritual art is an overhead shot of the entire ritual, and Whisper's art has her front and center in a standard legendary creature shot. And I think she got a promotion between those two cards. Her robes are a lot fancier now. That is true. The card from this set that will fight with Dwar's Familiar for cutest construct that Bryce wants to hug. Skittering Surveyor. 
3 mana for a 1-2 artifact creature construct. When it enters the battlefield, you may search your library for a basic land card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. Comparable to a Pilgrim's Eye, which is the same for a 1-1 flyer. Pilgrim's Eye is probably slightly better, but this would be playable probably in artifact decks that really need land. The best part, though, is its flavor text. Like a cross between a spider and a spyglass, but friendlier. Next up, we've got Lich's Mastery. Three black 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 for a legendary enchantment with hexproof. You can't lose the game. Whenever you gain life, draw that many cards. Whenever you lose life, for each one life you lost, exile a permanent you control or a card from your hand or graveyard. When Lich's Mastery leaves the battlefield, you lose the game. This card was previewed on Facebook by none other than Dr. Richard Garfield, PhD, because he designed it as a fix for the very old and original card, Lich. There are a number of Lich-themed effects in Magic that usually involve an enchantment that replaces your life with something else, sort of. It, it connects it to something that isn't normal life loss and gain. The issue is, almost all of them have a you-lose-the-game clause, so not having Hexproof makes you really vulnerable. We have some important historical context from Ariel, Knight of Windgrace. Two white-black for a 4-4 legendary creature Human Knight. With Vigilance, two and a white tap. Create a 2-2 white knight creature token with Vigilance. Black tap. Tap X, untap knights you control. Destroy target creature with power X or less. Ariel is a knight mounted upon a black panther, which looks awesome. Windgrace himself, the late, probably late at least, planeswalker who likely died during the mending, was also a Black Panther. This was now a good chunk of years ago, so this indicates that Windgrace, his memory at least, lives on. Another confusing point of lore is that the Windgrace family and the estate are actually the family that Krovax was originally from. A handful of cards here demonstrate the strong sapperling and fungus slash thalid tribal mechanics that are present in Dominaria. There's Sprout Swarm, a reprint, three in a green for an instant that creates three 1-1 one -one green sapperlings. Spore Crown Thalid, which is a Thalid Lord, well, a, a sapperling lord. It's one in a green for a 2-2 two -two fungus. Each other creature you control that's a fungus or sapperling gets plus one plus one. And then perhaps the most interesting card for sapperling decks that exist, Fungal Plots, one in a green for an enchantment. One in a green, exile a creature card from your graveyard, Create a 1-1 green sapperling creature token. Sacrifice two sapperlings, you gain two life and draw a card. There are only a handful of sapperling slash fungus cards that involve card draw, so I'm sure this will be a welcome include. Another saga here. The Mending of Dominaria. Three green green for an enchantment saga. One and two are put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard, then you may return a creature card from your graveyard to your hand. 3. Return all land cards from your graveyard to the battlefield, then shuffle your graveyard into your library. The art depicts an intricate wood carving involving Freilise, Lord Windgrace, Karn, and Teferi, as well as the broken world of Dominaria at the time of the Mending. I am going to merely read the flavor text for Weight of Memory and then move on. That's not true. I am going to merely state the art for Weight of Memory and read the flavor text and then move on. It has Jwara, Karn, and Tefiri, none of them looking especially comfortable. Flavor text, 
In lives that have stretched for centuries, there are bound to be a few awkward silences. Dominaria cannot wait. Oh, okay, just, just a minute then. All right. I'll be here. <laughs> Good old awkward Karn. Awkward Karn could be a meme. Yeah. I don't know that I want it to be, but it could. <laughs> Next up is Traxos, Scourge of Krug. Four mana for a legendary artifact creature construct. Traxos is a 7-7 with trample. Traxos, Scourge of Krug, enters the battlefield tapped and doesn't untap during your untap step. Whenever you cast a historic spell, untap Traxos. I commend you for getting through the phrase untap Traxos. If you're like me, as a relative newcomer to old school magic lore, your first question when reading this card is, where the heck is Krug? And who gave it that name? Krug is a reference to the original dragon engine card from Antiquities. With flavor text, those who believed the city of Krug would never fall to Mishra's forces severely underestimated the might of his war machines. Dragon Engine was a 1-3 with weird, bad fire breathing. You could pay 2 of any color of mana to give it plus 1 plus 0 oh until end of turn. Not exactly something that inspires fear in a local populace. Traxos gets there, though. And now we have the bulk of spoilers that came of the final gallery being released. First up, Rescue a reprint from, I think, Urza's Saga. Blue for an instant, return target permanent you control to its owner's hand. Flavor text, with just a few seconds to escape, Darien saved Hercule's additions on restoring physical objects from Ash. And the, the art, the, the place is on fire. It's burning down. I don't know much about Hercule, but what I do know is his spell, Hercule's Recall, that returns all artifacts to their owner's hands. So cute reference there. Her spell. Really? Yep. One of the original flavor texts for Hercule's Recall says, This spell attributed to Drafna was actually the work of his wife, Hercule. Which, oddly enough, brings us full circle to the pronoun discussion I was having earlier. Next up, Artificer's Assistant. Blue for a 1-1 creature bird with flying. Whenever you cast a historic spell, scry one. Apparently this might show up in Popper. I don't care about that. I care that it's an adorable bird. A magpie, I'm told. Aww. Another card I want to tell you about just for its flavor text, Relic Runner. She can't be blocked if you've cast a historic spell this turn. Flavor text, her knack for tampering with wards got her kicked out of the academy, but they also got her back in. Heh. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Gideon's Reproach is a reprint with fantastic new art. One and a white for an instant, Gideon's Reproach deals four damage to target attacking or blocking creature. Flavor text, on Amonkhet, Gideon lost both his Sorrel and his faith in himself but he can still throw a punch, and he still knows a bad guy when he sees one. The art is Gideon just straight up punching a guy in the face. <laughs> a bad guy, in case you were curious. Gideon hates a bad guy, especially the Cabal. Nope, nope, stop right there. <laughs> no more memes. No more memes and bad flavor texts. Why am I even here? It's a great question. Anyway, getting on to this set's basic lands. Who I... I, like Gideon, do not pull my punches. Getting on to the basic lands, I'm seeing reflected here some of what Titus referenced when we were discussing what are affectionately referred to as the Jacek lands that he did for Ixalan. They were all basic lands that featured Jace to indicate how he was exploring and getting a feel for Ixalan. And Titus described how this is kind of new storytelling tech. 
using basic lands to indicate really anything besides what this place looks like. Titus' cycle that we'll likely discuss with him in great detail when he comes has the weatherlight in all images, as well as, I think, Thran architecture. Thran being the forerunner civilization with some apparently impressive technology, most of which we don't know about. Mark Poole's cycle references a cycle of lands he did for Fallen Empires, I think? Yes, Fallen Empires is correct. This cycle of cards all enter tapped. They all tap for a mana of a given color, or tap Sacrifice to add two mana of that color to your mana pool. All of the Mark Pool basics in Dominaria seem to be the same sites as those lands after, well, they've been sacrificed, I guess, because the structures there are mostly gone, and all we see are remnants of archways. It appears that the Jonas Duro cycle is showing us a couple of prominent locations on Dominaria, but from a distance. The island has what must be the Academy at Talaria West. The plains has what I imagine is the city of Banalia. The mountain has an encampment, perhaps, at the Gitu. The swamp? I don't know offhand, actually. Any ideas, Jacob? Oh, Jonas's has the stronghold in the distance. Oh, I was looking at the wrong one. Yes, you are correct. It has the Cabal's stronghold. Which makes my life a little bit easier to figure this stuff out. The last cycle is by an artist whose first name is Dimitar, and all of his last names are blurry in the images that I'm looking at. Otherwise, I would give him credit. But he's credited on earlier lands as just Dimitar. These are the non-human civilizations on Dominaria. The Plains depicts an attempted recreation of Sarah's realm, where I assume the angels hang out. The island is an underwater merfolk city. The forest might be Yavimaya? Could be. The mountain is the either a goblin encampment or maybe it's a Gitu encampment. And the swamp is Urborg which is now a flourishing, dark, grimy city in a swamp. And there was a town before. Lord Wingrace was the Lord of Orborg, and he did have subjects. It seems to be doing quite well for itself. Next, Voltaic Servant. Two mana for an artifact creature construct. It's a 1-3, and at the beginning of your end step, untap target artifact. Flavor text, a missing piece in search of the puzzle. Voltaic Servant's hand appears to be a Voltaic key, which would only make sense, as Voltaic Key is an artifact that untaps an artifact. Voltaic Servant also looks suspiciously, probably accidentally, like an elite from Halo. It's got the mandibles, and it's holding a glowy thing that reminds me of an energy sword. This design is close to the strangely sci-fi designs from the Invasion era that we see on some cards, where for some reason magic looked way less like a traditional fantasy game, and more like Halo. Weird. I wonder if there was Warhammer 40k influence in there. Hmm. That entire era was a little bit more grimdark, too. It's true. Next up is Ancient Animus. One on a green for an instant. Put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control if it's legendary. Then it fights target creature and opponent controls. Flavor text... Multani's mind grasped for consciousness as Rage itself rebuilt his body. The art for this card is by our boy Titus Lunter, and I love the posing. Multani looks like he is rebuilding himself by just reaching out and grabbing whatever's available, whatever kind of primal energy he can get a hold of. And Karn, to his credit, looks ready to throw down with Multani. I think this answers the question then that we had of... Multani was in a really bad way after Time Spiral. Apparently, 
while the elemental was growing, but maybe didn't have need to assemble a body, and Karn did that by angering him? Poor Karn. Accident after accident for this poor guy. Poor awkward Karn. Probably getting my vote for most disturbing card art in Dominaria. Blink of an eye. One into blue for an instant with kicker one into blue. Return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. If this spell was kicked, draw a card. It's a functional reprint of Into the Royal from Zendikar. The art seems to have a silhouette of either a minotaur or a demon, but the silhouette is full of eyes. <laughs> All <laughs> eyes. Like... Two dozen eyes. Why? Oh, ooh. I don't even have that particular irrational fear. What's the, what is it? The discomfort with lots of eyes? There's a name for that. There's a similar one that is just about the shapes, which is trichophobia or tryptophobia. It doesn't please me to look at this. I want to move on. And lastly, we have the final story spotlight card, which is the first story spotlight card chronologically. Spoiler season is weird. Broken Bond. One in a green for a sorcery. Destroy target artifact or enchantment. You may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. Flavor text. I can't bear to see another plane broken before I make my own home whole. I'm sorry, but my watch is over. The art depicts Nyssa leaving the gate watch and breaking her oath figuratively and literally. In that visually, she has slashed through her symbol that she made when she swore her oath. This is at great contrast with the oath she took, because she was saying, yeah, everyone everywhere needs protecting, and now she's like, nah fam, I should go home. I'm not a big fan of this flavor text, but I'm okay with the story moment. We'll get into it more when we do our full story breakdown after the set. But it makes sense to me that Nissa would express displeasure with going after more personal vendettas like Liliana's demon hunts, or even in some ways the fight against Nicol Bolas. She signed up to protect the multiverse from obviously multiversal threats like the Eldrazi. And the more that she gets entangled with the group's internal politics, the less that she feels inclined to help them. This flavor text is a little misleading, and it goes back to her roots as only caring about Zendikar, when I'm not entirely sure that that was her impetus for leaving. After three long, and by long I mean medium, length episodes, we have finally gotten through all of the Dominaria spoilers. Thank you for bearing with us through all this, and I hope that you have enjoyed these cards as much as we have. Jacob, if someone wanted your comprehensive list of cards in this set that are relevant in the Gitrog monster, where could they go? They could find me anywhere they find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit. And any day where I get to talk about the Gitrog monster is a pretty good day in my book. And Bryce, if someone wanted to share their love for Joara's Familiar or any of your new pet project decks, where would they be able to find you? They can find me on Twitter as walking underscore atlas, or you can email us at info at opalnebula.com. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, ovalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash opalnebula. Thank you all for joining us in this very long but truly hype-filled season. And until next time, happy planeswalking, everyone. <laughs>